sing this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your, your mercy towards us and your son. And Lord, we come to you um, frequently remembering the gospel. And it would, be, it would be easy to allow in our hearts those expressions of gratitude to become routine or somehow mundane in our lives as just normal realities that we walk in that uh, don't captivate affections, that don't stir uh, longings and desires to draw near to you and to know you more and to walk in obedience. We know that if we love you, we would keep your commandments. And so, Lord, help us to express our genuine heart of gratitude and love, adoration and worship of you in the offering of lives that would be holy and pleasing to you. Lord, as we join together this morning as members, participants of your church, uh, Lord, we acknowledge the, the joy and blessing of, of fellowship. Um, to be together as men who love you is an immense privilege that we give thanks for. And yet, if all we had was each other and not you, uh, it would be for naught. And so, Lord, even in our enjoyment of the church, I pray that our supreme affection would be for Christ. That he would be what drives us to want to learn and grow and engage with one another and be sharpened. Uh, that he would be the, the supreme joy and um, love and desire of our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your uh, overview of the Old Testament, pull it out. If not, maybe look at somebody who does, or you can look up here, and we're just going to walk through this. We, we've kind of taken a break for a little bit. I don't know that we've actually looked at this this semester, um, but it's the key events of the Old Testament, and this is just helpful to keep, keep fresh, keep strong in our minds, uh, kind of the progression from creation to the cross. And so if you have that, you can look at it. Starts with creation. We see that God created everything, said that it was good. And then the fall takes place. Where do we see the fall happening in scripture? Genesis 3, exactly. And it gets so bad incredibly quickly to where God's assessment of mankind is that there was only evil, the, the intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. And so God brought upon judgment on the earth in the form of the flood, saves Noah and his family. They are called to disperse, inhabit the earth, spread out, inhabit the earth. What do they do? They all join together and they seek to make a name for themselves in um, the Tower of Babel. And so what does God do? He confuses their languages disperses them and quickly after that makes a promise to one man to become a nation that would bless all other nations. Now in order for a nation to exist there needs to be three key ingredients. What are those ingredients? People, constitution, and land. Exactly. And so God makes a promise to Abraham. His descendants eventually find themselves in captivity in Egypt God has a purpose within their captivity in Egypt. In 400 years, they go from 70 to 2 million. That is extreme exponential growth as a people. 
He brings them out of Exodus in 1446 BC by the means of 10 plagues. You see that in the lightning bolt with 10 on it. You guys, are you with me on the outline? They cross the Red Sea. At this point, they have their people, 2 million people strong. Uh, God takes them to Mount Sinai, gives them their constitution. They're a theocracy. What is a theocracy? Yeah, government led by a deity, by God. So Theo, God. So, uh, uh, yep. So they're a theocracy. They have religious leaders, but ultimately God is their king. Um, and so at this point, they've got their people. They've got their constitution. However, they disobey God. They build a golden image. They call it Yahweh. They make a graven image and call it Yahweh, that golden calf. God punishes them, causes them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until eventually brings them across the Jordan. They're called to inhabit the land, to divide it and conquer it, and that's where we see them actually full force a nation. And God calls them to occupy it fully. However, they disobey, they don't occupy it fully, and they enter into this season of cycles where they have judges ruling and they get into these cycles of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. And if you read through the book of Judges, you kind of see that theme happening over and over again in cycles. Again, it gets so bad within the priesthood that there's total corruption. Eli and his sons are an example of this. They have no king, no ark, no capital, no priesthood. At least the priesthood is totally defiled. No land as the Philistines are taken over them. And they also reject God as their king. They're not content to have God as a king. All of their problems are because we don't have a king like all the other nations. They want a monarchy. We want a king. But what they wanted was a king with the wrong heart. And they choose for themselves Saul. He did not have a heart that followed after Yahweh. He had no regard for the ark. He was disobedient to the Lord and a disregard for God's word. So what did God do? He raised up a leader with a heart after his own heart in David. The first act that David did was he went and retrieved the ark. He was obedient to God in his word. And then he had Solomon. Solomon had a divided heart. During Solomon's reign, the Lord brought peace and prosperity to the land, but he actually gave him three warnings to not acquire for himself. Do you remember what those three things are? Yep. Horses. Yeah. What women and money, riches. And those were the things that he actually went after. Uh, the significance of that is acquiring for yourself uh, extreme amounts of horses was like bolstering your military. It's essentially um, God saying, you don't need to focus on a robust army. I will protect you. And responding going, sounds good. And then putting all of your attention towards building tanks and fighter jets. Yeah. <laughs> um, women, alliances with other nations. So you're seeking to bring about peace through alliances with other nations. But what you do is you bring in pagan women who lead the heart of the men astray. And we see that even with Solomon. And then obviously money. Money is power depending on riches as opposed to depending on the Lord. And so the result of that was in 931, a split of the kingdom. And that's when you get Israel now is the ten tribes so you kind of got this banner of israel um, the
the Jewish people, the Hebrews, that covers all of Israel, but at this divide underneath that banner of the Hebrews or the Jewish people or Israel is two subcategories. Israel, which is the ten tribes, the northern ten tribes, and Judah, which are the southern two tribes consisting of Judah and Benjamin. And so you've got this divided kingdom. Israel, the northern ten tribes, had no good kings at this point and eventually in 722 BC was taken into the Assyrian captivity and uh, dispersed within pagan nations. Judah had some good kings and yet in 605 BC was taken into the Babylonian captivity where um, through a number of different phases, three phases brought into the Babylonian captivity and yet they had a remnant that remained, a future is promised, God is in control, he's not finished, uh, he will provide atonement, and he will come again and establish his kingdom. And there's a hope for Israel through that. Why exile in Babylon for Judah? Well, Babylon was extremely idolatrous. They had idols for everything, and that complete bombardment of idolatry Actually, God used that to create a distaste for idols in the Jewish people, in, in the Israelite people. So one of the, the consequences of the Babylonian captivity on the hearts of his people is that when you get their return to the land, they're just disgusted with the prominence of idols. Um, it gave them a respect for the law, a desire for the law. It also gave them a hope for the Messiah when the kingdom would be restored, when Christ would return. And so what did they need to do? They needed to prepare for the Messiah. And that's where we see the books, uh, two, two books that primarily usher in return to the land for the people. Do you guys recall what those are? One has to do with rebuilding the temple and one has to do with rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah is one. Ezra is the other. So in the way that I remember it, Ezra, temple, Nehemiah, a longer word, the walls, longer. That's how I remember it. I have, I have to come up with silly things like that. So Ezra rebuilt the temple, uh, kind of headed up that, that, and then Nehemiah is Israel rebuilding the walls in preparation for the Messiah. Um, and they await Christ, and Christ came. And so that is key events of the Old Testament. Any questions, comments? Modern day Babylon. Tyler, do you know what would consist of modern day Babylon? I think that's right. I think it's part I Iran and Iraq. Doesn't it cover some of both of that? It depends on the Babylon kingdom at what time and which area, but I think that's the general region. I don't know. Are you? There you go. All right. We are, good question. We are going to shift gears to our outline for this morning. We're going to talk about shepherding children and look at some foundational principles for parenting to the glory of God. Foundational principles of parenting to the glory of God. And this is something that I hope we're just going to kind of jump around on some key components, key principles that we should be keeping in mind when we think about 
parenting. And one of the greatest joys uh, really in this life is the, the privilege of caring for young souls. And when you think about that, that the Lord would entrust into our care um, something that ultimately we have no control over, but we have a stewardship of in the care for little ones and getting the joy of teaching them wisdom and teaching them to flee to, you know, to embrace wisdom and to flee foolishness and teaching them how to, to navigate this life. It's, it's just a, it's just an immense joy and a privilege and yet it's weighty and sobering. And so there is absolutely no way that we can cover the span of all that we could talk about uh, probably in a year of classes in regards to parenting. And so, you know, we need to recognize the limitations of what we're going to address today, but hopefully what we do address will be some great foundational principles that uh, will reinforce and strengthen areas where we need to be encouraged and will also bolster and redirect areas where we need to be uh, strengthened as well and maybe cause us to ask some questions and to, to bring some renewed eyes of scrutiny to our own uh, parenting as dads. And so that's the, the goal for today is not to cover every nuance that we might address, but to set some foundational principles to help us press on in pleasing the Lord in our parenting endeavors. And so when we think about foundational principles for parenting, really the core of where we need to start as the foundation is really the foundation for the Christian life, and that is to recognize the supreme goal of parenting. The supreme goal of parenting. And the supreme goal of parenting falls directly in line with what the supreme goal of the believer is, which is to glorify God. And that's really helpful because if we have the supreme goal of parenting to be to glorify God, that removes external pressures of us trying to control things that ultimately we can't control, that God's in control of. But if our obligation is to in control, or if our obligation is to glorify God, what brings God glory? Submission, obedience, godliness, faithfulness, those things, those things directly related to us. And so it just sets our hearts and our affections to focus on what we actually are accountable for, not getting caught up in the externals that ultimately we aren't accountable. And so thinking through the supreme goal of parenting is the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, parenting certainly comes under that umbrella of what the believer is called to be about in regards to God's glory. And so recognizing the goal, the supreme goal, is not to obtain the joy that I experience in my parenting. It is incredibly satisfying to watch your kids do well in life. Being a parent has the potential to be incredibly encouraging and rewarding. And when you watch your kids just blossom and grow as young men and women, when you see them not get something and then get something, when you have your child crawl up on your lap, cuddle you and say, I love you, daddy. Right, think about what goes on in your heart in those moments and the joy of that. The ultimate goal can't be that. It can't be that. There are those joys. But listen, if your, if your purpose in parenting, in husbanding, in, in caring for your children in the home 
is that I would feel a certain way in response to how my children behave, that, that their obedience would create deeper fulfillment for me. What happens when you have a wayward child? Did, did you fail? Have you lost hope to glorify God, to please him, if your child goes wayward, if your child is in a season of rebellion? It, it can't be that. God doesn't call you to control the trajectory, the eternal trajectory of your child. He calls you to be faithful. And so that's why it's helpful to realize that you may experience joy and fulfillment in parenting. That's a good thing. When we talk about supreme goals, it's not pitted to get against one another as if my goal is the glory of God, and if I experience joy in parenting, well, now I'm, I'm not being obedient to God. That's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is if what you strive after is the feeling that you get when things go well in your parenting, you're striving after a vain pursuit. Strive after God's glory, and sometimes the blessing of that and the consequence of that is joy and fulfillment and give praise to God for those things and enjoy those things. But don't let those things become the idol of your parenting. The supreme goal of parenting is not saved children. That's not your supreme goal in parenting. You strive after that, you long for that, you pray for that, you shepherd to that end, you expose your child's heart to the gospel, you teach them the wisdom of the Lord, you teach them God's word, and yet the goal for you is not to save your children. We can't do that. We cannot change their hearts. The Lord has to do that. What can we do? Be faithful. Be faithful. The ultimate goal of parenting is the glory of God. Any questions on that? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a paradigm shift of, I gotta, you know, my identity is wrapped up in my children. We see that. The family, my identity is associated with family name. I need to save face, maintain a persona, um, and so you need to get in line because you don't want to bring shame to me or the family, and it becomes all kind of inward focused as being successful at a horizontal level and God says, no, set, set all of that aside. That's not to be the driving motivator. This is the motivator. And so our call is to be faithful before the Lord. Uh, we talk about in our, in our home, um, you know, we don't, we don't watch movies that are specifically designed to instill fear. So uh, a movie that is, is created for the explicit purpose of instilling feel, fear, we don't watch those in our home. Um, the only fear that we want to cultivate is the fear of the Lord. And so fear of circumstances, fear of critical activities, fear of man, 
we just don't want to we don't want to cultivate that disposition we want to cultivate a disposition where what we fear what we have trained ourselves to fear what we find joy in fearing is the lord um and that's really what we need to focus on when we think about parenting is uh, a supreme fear of the lord a desire to glorify him to serve him in love and adoration and submission and so what this does is this really narrows the focus when we think about parenting to away from questions primarily focused on how do I get my kid to fill in the blank, which there's a time for that, right? How do I get my kid to stay in bed when it's bedtime? Great, good question. We can absolutely talk through principles for that. But this shifts those kinds of questions as to not solely focused on how can I get this external behavior to happen in my kid, but what kind of man do I need to be as I come alongside my children in teaching them the discipline of submission and obedience expressed in staying in their bed? And maybe we don't say all those words, right? At the end of the day, how do I get my kid to stay in bed? <laughs> can you help me with that? Absolutely. But now we have a foundation established that the goal in this ultimately if your kid stays in their bed, but you have sinned against the Lord, that has not been a successful parenting moment. However, if you have been faithful before the Lord and your kid has gotten out of bed six times that night and every subsequent night for six months, but you've been faithful, you can trust the Lord with what's happening with your kid. You can give thanks, you can glorify God. You can go to sleep that night with a clear conscience before the Lord. Saying, I was faithful. And this is hard, <laughs> but I was faithful. As opposed to, I sinned, and finally I've got some peace and quiet because my kid is terrified, not of the Lord, but of dad blowing his top off. And, and so now my kid's in bed. I got the outcome I wanted. Was that successful? No. And so that's why this glory of God principle has to be the grounding principle because we can actually be to our shame, good at manipulating our children. That's not what God calls us to as parents. He calls us to shepherd our children and to glorify God to that end. So the supreme goal of our parenting must be the glory of God. An incredible aid to that and really where we should start when we think about our parenting is with our marriages. Is with our marriages. And so an extremely helpful aid in achieving the goal of glorifying God is staying faithful as the foundation of your parenting to God's call for you in your marriage. To parent as one. You will not serve your children well to parent diligently and yet neglect your marriage for the sake of your children. So to neglect what God calls you to be as a husband in order to advance what God calls you to be as a dad is is not right <laughs> that can't coexist you're you're actually it's going to be counterproductive that's the word i was looking for to think i'm going to neglect this area so i can give greater attention to this area is counterproductive you're actually hindering a foundational means of grace to being faithful in your parenting when you neglect being faithful as a husband and so in your parenting, you need to remember God's purpose 
for the marriage relationship. And there's several purposes that the Lord has for the marriage relationship. And you can see a number of them there. This isn't exhaustive, but some key purposes that the Lord has is, is companionship. Your wife, you're one with her. She should be your best friend. The one that you, you look to, care for, find help from, are relationally intimate with. She's your wife. You're one, one flesh. God looked at sinless earth, and the only negative observation that he had to make upon sinful earth where everything was good, 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 the only thing that was not good when there was no sin was for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Everything else was good. And there wasn't even sin. But it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he made for him a helper suitable for him. And from his flesh made Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and made a helper suitable for him. And looked at it and said, this is good. And so recognizing the companionship that comes in the marriage relationship is necessary, it's helpful to, to recognize that God's intention is for service of one another in the marriage relationship. There's a reciprocal service of one another. A wife is to be a helper of her husband. We see that in Titus 2, 4 and 5. She's to be a worker in the home. This is manifested through things like prayer and encouragement and support, being respectful and bringing loving admonishment to her husband when necessary and care and encouragement. There's a, a care for the children, shepherding the children, training the sh children that, that a wife has as she's a keeper of the home, as she cares for young children. And so thinking through uh, a wife's role as a worker in the home, we also must think through uh, the fact that husbands are called to love their lives, uh, love their wives as Christ loved the church. And so when we think about this companionship, this service of one another, yes, a, a wife is to be a helper for her husband, but remember, husbands, your wife is not only a helper, she's also a companion. And women have responsibilities to their relationship with God. Her only role in life is not as your helper. She's also a daughter of God. She's a sister to other believers. She's a mom to children, if the Lord has you in that season. And so she has other responsibilities than just being a helper to you. She has a relationship with God, children, opportunities to serve in the church. And so thinking through as husbands in our marriage, wh when was the last time you asked, how have I enabled my wife to fulfill her God-given responsibilities? In my loving Christ-like leadership, how have I died to myself to recognize the areas that the Lord has in her life where she has opportunities to be faithful before him, how have I enabled her in that through sacrificial love and service and care? So when we think about wives helping their husbands and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church, these are really critical aids as foundational practices that should be present in our lives to aid us in our parenting. We'll talk about more in a moment how these things aid us in our parenting. But we also have the call uh, within our marriage to be a characterization of Christ in the church, a reflection of Christ in the church. The marriage relationship is a picture of Christ and his people. And so in our marriage relationships, the gospel is to be put on display through biblical marriages. Husbands' love for their wife is to imitate Christ's sacrificial love 
and care on the cross and the wife's submission to her husband is to demonstrate the church's eager submission to Christ. And so thinking through what, what picture, first of all, who gets the clearest view of that picture? Your children. And so when you think about shepherding and parenting and caring for little souls, simply your faithfulness to be an accurate display of Christ and his church is something that can't be overlooked in your parenting. That actually should be a foundational principle. Wow, I can look and see the faithfulness of Christ pictorially displayed in a husband and wife as a mom and dad who are a husband and wife living that out faithfully before me. Don't underestimate the impact of that picture being faithfully put on display on the hearts of your children. And then also when we think about not neglecting our marriage relationship for the sake of our children, we have to talk about God's call for sexual union within the marriage relationship. God calls husband and wives to be one flesh. He has purpose behind this. He has it in procreation, but also intimacy of one flesh expressed physically between a husband and wife in sacrificial love and care and service of one another. That's God's intention. And God's intention in the marriage relationship is for a husband to be satisfied in the self-giving nature of his wife's care for him intimately. And vice versa, for a wife to be satisfied in a husband's self-giving nature of himself for her benefit physically. That's God's intention. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7, that a man's body is not his own, but it's his wife's. And a wife's body is not her own, but it's for her husband. Hebrews 13, 4, the marriage bed is not to be defiled. And so thinking through intentionally, it, it can be so easy to get caught up in all the demands of parenting and to neglect maintaining right perspective of service of your spouse, right? It becomes a debate. Um, I did this. Can you do this with the kids? Well, I did this. Well, I did this. And all of a sudden it becomes a negotiation of who's done what and you're divvying up responsibilities as if it's, you know, an inheritance to be divided or something along those lines, as opposed to my call is to serve. My call for a wife is to help. Okay, so it doesn't matter who changed what diapers today. If a diaper needs to be changed and I'm home, go change the diaper. (laughs) Serve your wife. If a child needs to be disciplined, lead your home spiritually when you're there. Go discipline your child. If a child needs to be put down to bed and you're exhausted, go lead your home. Read a Bible story with your child. Pray with your child. Sing songs with your children. Bring your wife into that. Lead. Serve. Embrace those things. And yet, the temptation is to have all of the demands and needs of your children take away from your love and care and cultivating of intimacy with your wife. That is not going to be helpful for your godliness to neglect faithfulness in your marriage. It's not going to be helpful for your godliness in in really every area of life, but especially in your parenting. Because your kids will notice when there's strife and tension between you and your wife. And so maintaining God's intention for marriage, a healthy, robust intimacy, both relationally, service-wise, and physically, is important. And it's, it, it's not always easy. It, it takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes 
awkward conversations of expectations and planning, and yet you will only aid yourself to the end of glorifying God if you give intentional consideration of these things. Now, before we move on, it's important to note God's ideal for the home environment is that it consists of a husband and a wife who both love the Lord, who love each other in the household. Not everybody finds themselves in that relationship. We live in a sinful world where there's effects of sin, sickness, death, broken relationships. All of those things exist. And what I would want to encourage any man who finds himself outside of God's ideal for the home and parenting, that does not make God less faithful to give you what you need to be able to glorify God in your parenting. So if you don't have a wife for whatever reason, you still have hope to glorify God. And if you have a wife in your parenting season of life, don't run past her towards your children. Run alongside of her towards your children in your care of your children. But if you find yourself not in a season by God's providence where you have a wife to parent alongside, you can trust him and that's okay. He'll be faithful. He gives you what you need to glorify him. Any questions on that? Okay. I want to talk about a little bit God's call for holiness in the parenting relationship. And so first we talk about being faithful in our marriage relationship in parenting. Well, we also need to understand when we think about all of the practices, tactics, strategies, implications of care for our children, if the supreme goal is the glory of God, the success of that is really going to hinge on our personal holiness. So our first line of questions when thinking through biblical parenting needs to be through the lens of how, what does faithfulness look like for me in this situation? How do I walk in obedience to the Lord in this situation? What does God call me to be in this situation? And so biblical principles, some, uh, s some helpful things to consider when thinking through parenting in regards to our personal holiness is, first of all, just remember biblical principles for addressing sin. Okay, all of the biblical principles for addressing sin don't go out the window when it comes to addressing sin in your child's life. So what are some key temptations that we might easily neglect because it's the category of our children? Well, one is gossip, right? To, to air out our children's weaknesses publicly to others without regard for the child. We don't get some sort of just buy. I can talk about all the horrible things my child did because I really need parenting advice. No, you can actually protect your child and not slander them, not gossip about them, and, and seek help at the same time. It takes some thoughtfulness. Hey, when you're addressing situations like this, how, how do you, what are some biblical principles for discipline when this is happening? Be thoughtful. Actually share those things only when necessary in a way that's honoring to the Lord to sharpen you not as an outlet for complaining about how hard life is because your child's in the terrible twos or whatever season they're in that's hard. 
you know, it's, it, and, and that's the temptation is to clothe uh, discontentment, complaining, gossip under the banner of, well, I'm just asking for help and how to care for my kids. Well, y yeah, but you spent five minutes setting up a story that really wasn't necessary to share that, that didn't honor the Lord and didn't serve your child in that situation. Um, so thinking through that, what are some other biblical principles for addressing sin? What well, logs and specs, right? You're going to be so much better positioned to shepherd your children when you keep a short account of sin in your own life. And think about a dad of a teenage boy who is trying to shepherd his child towards self-control and purity, and he's ingrained in pornography. You're just going to have a defiled conscience. You're going to feel shackles in what you can speak to. You're going to feel like a hypocrite because you are walking with your child in that. And do you really think that you're going to be able to see clearly to help a 13-year-old boy think about controlling himself around girls and controlling himself around media, are you going to be able to see clearly if you can't control yourself when you drive down the street, when you open up your computer, uh, wh whatever the circumstances may be? So keeping short account of sin, bi biblical principles for addressing sin, um, go to them, go to them in private, help, help them, shepherd them. Walk through those things with them. Think through, when you think about your personal holiness and parenting, think through the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Joy. Am I joyful in my parenting? Do I have peace in my parenting? Or am I always wound so tight and every little thing is just, the kids did this again and I came home and I just want some peace and quiet. Oh, no, am I a man of peace? Is, is the Spirit of God producing in me Supernatural peace, patience. Am I patient with my children? Kindness. Do I speak with kindness? And speaking with kindness or gentleness doesn't mean not speaking appropriate with the sobriety of the moment, right? T to be kind or gentle does not mean a negligence of speaking with a tone that's appropriate for the need of the moment. If something is very serious, to speak little Johnny you, you loved your toy more than you loved your little sister. Do you recognize your behavior was foolish? Do you, do you recognize to, to hit your sister because she took your toy? Your lo you're loving that thing more than your sister. To speak with a tone that brings uh, appropriate sobriety to the moment, that is helpful. To speak with a lack of restraint or control to, not, to be harsh. We don't yell in our family. <laughs> you know, it, it's hypocritical. So recognizing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Am I being self-controlled right now? Think through the lens of those things. Cultivate personal holiness. Focus on yourself walking in the spirit as you parent, as you shepherd. Romans 12, 9 through 21 is incredibly helpful. Don't repay evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. Put on a heart of compassion and love and kindness and so on. So consider these things. Remember God's call for personal holiness in your parenting.
And that should be one of our primary focuses when we think about parenting. Am, am I being a man of self-control? Am I being a man of patience? Am I being a man of joy? Do I recognize parenting opportunities as opportunities to glorify God through Christ-like sacrificial service? Or do I just want peace and quiet? Or do I just want a little bit of relaxation? I've had a hard week. Honey, can you get this one? Oh, no, I actually have the privilege. I have the joy of embracing the role that God has for me as a, as a leader in the home. And I want to step into that. And I want to trust the Lord. It's, more, it's better to give than to receive. And so I'm going to give of myself in service of my home in this moment. I'm going to be a man of, of self-control and patience and joy and zeal. And, and you've heard me talk about it before, that the role of a husband and a father in the home uh, needs to be like a, an athlete. Right? The, best, the best athletes, the athletes that make a name for themselves are not the ones who play great, great basketball for three and a half quarters and then are tired and don't want to be in the game at the end. No, the, the best, most no notoriously successful athletes, basketball players, are the ones who are successful in crunch time. Championship round, final two minutes of the game, be a closer. Have that mentality in your home. Don't, don't let your foot off the pedal because you're home and it's comfortable. No, give your family your best. If you're tired, be tired for the right things. Exert yourself faithfully in the home and exert yourself faithfully in the home primarily by exerting yourself towards godliness. Be the man that God calls you to be. And this comes back to the importance of heart shepherding. How much better positioned will you be to be this when you're faithfully spending time in prayer, when you're faithfully spending time in God's word, and not just a 30-minute segment in the morning that kind of comes and goes, and then you occupy yourself with all the happenings of the day, but a disposition that uses that intimate time with the Lord and his word to catapult you into lives of worship, where you pray at all times, give thanks in all situations, and rejoice always, knowing that that's God's will for you. I did it backwards. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things, for this is God's will for you in Christ. Any questions on that? Remembering God's call to personal holiness. Okay, we're going to narrow in a little bit tighter now to probably the categories that usually we want to jump into, but I think we'll be positioned better to jump into these categories with those things as the foundation, God's glory, faithfulness in my marriage, and personal pursuit of personal holiness. What are some principles for parenting? Well, first of all, we should be consistent in our training. Recognize the importance of training. Parenting is not only, it's not exclusively about discipline, but we're actually called to proactively train towards righteousness. We see that in Deuteronomy 6 through 9, just this intentional putting of God's word all around the house and talking about God's word, training them towards God's word all the time in your life, to teach your children wisdom, to train them up in the Lord as Colossians uh, or Ephesians 4 talks about. We need to consistently train, be diligent in the training of our, of our children, teach, set expectations, and with that, set obtainable goals Think through the lens of how can I train them and give them a path towards success as opposed to um, 
you know, you wouldn't ask somebody to make an egg casserole who doesn't know how to crack an egg, right? You, you got to teach them the steps. Well, do that with your children. Don't expect them to, you know, wh what would be an example of this? Clean your room. Well, have you ever sat with your child and showed them the shoes go here, your clothes need to be hung up, your toys need to go on this shelf, these toys go on this shelf, to expect them to clean their room but never set a context of what that actually means. Walk with them, do that, do that work with them on the front end. I, I remember doing this with our firstborn, Asher, when he was one years old. Julie was so faithful that when it was time to clean up toys, she wouldn't just do it all real quick, even though she could have, and it would have been done in about a minute. Instead, she'd take 15 minutes and hand him a toy, put this here, hand him a toy, put, no, 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 hey, look at mommy, put this, okay, put this away, put this here. And what she could have done in one minute, she would spend 15 minutes training him. We were a lot faithful for some reason with our firstborn in that than our secondborn. And, uh, you know, consistency is important. We had areas we needed to grow. But, but man, that's a, that's a helpful reminder to consistently train. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and if the goal is my convenience, that's going to be a lot harder. But if the goal is glorifying God, you glorify God when you set your children up with clear expectations and you train them towards those things. Think about it this way. Let's say we were going to have a fellowship gathering and you know there's going to be 100 people at this gathering and your young child has a hard time in uh, active, chaotic, social environments. They're very shy. They want to be reclusive in those moments. And you go, and you go to this gathering, and you meet a new person at church, and your child's there. And you say, little Johnny, say hi to Mr. Smith. And little Johnny looks down. Hi. No, no. Look him in the eye. Oh, uh, hi. And, and then they're, you know, are just totally disrespectful. You go home. Johnny. You didn't shake their hand, you didn't look them, you didn't say hi, and all of a sudden, you had all these expectations for them, and you never actually trained them towards that. And in the moment when all of their anxieties or fear of man were having to be confronted, they didn't have any foundation to know what the expectations were or how to address that. Conversely, you sit down 15 minutes before it's time to go. Hey, Johnny, we're going to the fellowship gathering there will probably be some new people there. Oh, when we meet a new person, how do we show kindness and love and respect towards that person? I don't know, Dad. You look them in the eye. Let's practice. Look me in the eye. Yeah, just like this. You look them in the eye. And what else do you, they might say hello. They might put their hand out like this. What do you do when somebody puts their hand out like this? You shake their hand. Shake my hand. Good job. How about high five? High five. How about knuckles? Blow it up. You know, Enjoy those moments with your child, but, but teach, them, teach them. And what if they say, nice to meet you? Well, what's a respectful, kind response? It's nice to meet you, too. And, oh, keep looking at me in the eye. Keep Take the effort. Do that. Now you have a foundation. You've trained them towards the expectations. Okay? Think about Target. Help your wife think through trips to the store. What are they going to do? Can I buy that? No. Okay, if you see that tendency starting to come up with your child, sit down with your child. Tomorrow you're going to Target with mommy. Do you think you're going to see something you want? Yes. Is your goal, is your obligation to get that thing? Yes. No. 
you need to obey mommy. So what if mommy says yes? Yay! What if mommy says no? Uh, I throw a fit. No. <laughs> Be self-controlled. Honor your mommy. Respect your mommy. You have to trust her. Tomorrow I'm going to ask you when I get home, how did it go at Target? And I want you to tell me if, if you did what daddy told you to. And we're going to have a discussion about that. I want to hear how it went. Okay, daddy. Um, set expectations. Set goals. It takes work. It takes intentionality. But it, but it doesn't feel like work when it becomes a normal part of your parenting, of your shepherding, to instruct them, to train them, to, to set expectations, clear expectations and goals. And then, with that, you will be better positioned to diligently discipline. Where there has been specific training, specific instruction, now there's clear evidences when discipline is necessary. When discipline is necessary. Let's look at a few different Proverbs together. We'll be jumping around, but primarily in the book of Proverbs. So go to Proverbs 13, 24. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Go to 1918. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. There we see the contrast. Discipline is an expression of longing for robust life in your child. And to neglect discipline is to be content with, with demise for your child. For a child to never be disciplined aids their demise. 22 verse 6. Train up your child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay, that, that verse is oftentimes misunderstood. It, it's used to say, hey, if I do this, it will equal this. As we know with proverbial wisdom, these are general principles of wisdom. There is an element, if you train your child, those principles, those disciplines, those tendencies are going to stay with them. They may or choose to suppress that, to go a different way down the road, but they're going to have on their conscience the things that you train them in. So if you train a child to be respectful, I, I still find it hard to not refer to an older man as sir. That was, a, that was a staple in our household. If you were talking to somebody who was an adult as a child, yes, sir, no, ma'am. If I'm talking to somebody that, that is recognizably older than me, there's tendencies to, to call them sir and ma'am. That's great. There's, there's respect there, tendencies of respect. Those are helpful things. So what we're talking about training your children sets them on a trajectory. It instills discipline as far as just consistency in things. And so that's, that's a sobering reality. Because if we train them poorly, or if we train them towards the wrong things, those things will have a propensity to stay with them as well. And we see that manifested frequently in people's lives. Verse 15, this is really a critical proverb for understanding the point of discipline and what you're going after. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. When we think about the rod of discipline, when we think about disciplining our child, recognizing that God's intention is that the rod of discipline is a means of driving foolishness from their heart. 
that's the purpose of the rod. We're going to look at the other Proverbs, and then I want to talk about that a little bit more. Proverbs 23, verse 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child, although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Again, you see this rod of direction being a means of pointing your child towards righteousness. And then uh, 29 verse 15. Rod, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Then jump down to 17. Correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. This is a result of parenting is that there's just much more joy when you see your child walking in God's intention for them to walk in submission and obedience. So when we think about discipline, yes, we train. We actively train and promote right behavior and what's pleasing to the Lord and how to think about the Lord and how to navigate this life uh, and, and to do so under the authority of God. Discipline is what we're called to do when there is expressions of foolishness in the child's heart. Foolishness is different than ignorance. And we want to make that distinction clear in our own minds that we're not called to discipline away from ignorance. And we're not talking about willful ignorance, right? There's categories for that where people are willfully ignorant of things that they know to be true. We're talking about uninformed ignorance. Okay, so a, a child goes to touch something that they shouldn't touch, but they've never been told not to touch it. You don't spank the child for their ignorance of simply not knowing something that they were never instructed. What do you do? Don't touch that. You instruct them. No, no. That might come through a little just no, no to help them recognize what no means as they're putting that together as a eight-month-old or 10-month-old or 12-month-old. But then when discipline is required is when they look you in the face, they understand the instruction, they choose in their foolishness to not remain in submission to your authority and in their own self-will, they touch it. <laughs> knowing, knowing, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm not gonna let you be the boss of me. That's what's going on in their little heart. And what is that? Foolishness is bound up in their heart in that moment. And so you use the rod of discipline as a means of driving the foolishness from their heart. The rod of discipline is never expressed as punitive punishment. Right? It's, yes. The rod of discipline is not an expression of judgment based off of the nature of the offense. I don't know anywhere in scripture where a parent is called to administer judgment upon their child for their offense. And this was something that we had to think through early on in our use of the rod. I would associate a number of swaths based off of the intensity of the offense that I thought was taking place. And as I was interacting around God's word and thinking through parenting, reading some books and taking a class back at Grace, I, I had the realization I'm not viewing the rod as a means of driving foolishness from the heart to bring the child unto submission and restoration. I'm using the rod as a punitive punishment for the offense. 
And so how that looked practically was, you know, if, if you kind of touch something when you shouldn't have, you might get one or two swats. But if you haul off and hit your mom, you're getting three or four swats. And, and what I realized was I was using this as a punishment, not as discipline. I wasn't intending to drive the foolishness from their heart to create restoration of wisdom in their coming under my authority and remaining in that authority. I was simply, you did this, you did the, you did the crime, you got to pay the time. That's not how God calls parents to think, of, think about their training and discipline of their children or punishments of their children. We use those terms interchangeably, and I understand that. But I think there's a helpful nuance for our own hearts to think through when we think about the shepherding of our children. God's specific articulation of the use of the rod is in relation to disciplining towards righteousness, driving foolishness from the heart, foolishness that's expressed in the children through a lack of submission, lack of trust, lack of obedience. And so the rod is God's means of bringing them back under your authority into restoration. This is why just the practical nature of discipline, it must be done under self-control. It's not I'm angry and the rod, a spanking, is a means of me getting my anger out so that you can have your punishment so that you understand it was a bad thing you did. The use of the rod is an expression of love to help the child understand the folly in their own heart, to drive it from their heart, so that then they reposition themselves in submission and obedience to your authority, therefore creating reconciliation to the broken nature of the relationship that they created in their folly. And they learn the wisdom of obedience and submission. That's God's call for parenting. And so what we found was helpful was not having a, a um, abstract number of swats, but just a consistent one. You get three swats if you disobey, if you're foolish. And then you need to do the action or exemplify the contrary action to the expression of your foolishness. So if mommy said, go sit down at the table and you run to your room, okay, after discipline, you're going to do what we ask. Go sit down at the table and you're going to actually express the submission and obedience that you failed to express in that moment. If you hit your sibling, you're going to go seek your sibling's forgiveness. You don't just get a spanking and then we go along with life. No, the hardness of heart and selfishness that you express through hitting your sibling, you're going to go express contriteness, seek forgiveness, restore that relationship in submission and obedience to the authority of how we've explained that you need to conduct yourself. If you stole the toy from your sibling, and we told you to give it back, and you said no. What do you do? After discipline, you're going to go give the toy back. And you're going you're gonna to do, you're going to put on the right behavior of submission and obedience. There are situations where that's not possible. And that's okay. Trust the Lord with that. But have the normal pattern of your discipline be to train towards righteousness and to have them express the wisdom and submission and restoration of that relationship through obedience afterwards, after the discipline. That might mean three rounds of discipline for the same event, and at some point you have to use discernment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set aside persistence in this one battle with the greater view of the war because they're getting weary and I'm getting weary and I don't want this to cross over into anger in my own heart. 
and you got to think through that. And there's specific instances where it's good to not parent on an island. You know, bring other people into those practices. Get godly counsel, wise counsel. Hey, this is what it looks like. Would you help me? I had one child that was particularly squirmy. <coughs> Excuse me. Particularly squirmy when it was time for discipline. And, um, you know, I needed to help them remain steady. And yet, I didn't want to do anything that would harm them, physically harm them. And so, you know, had to sit down and, and ask one of my mentors, one of my pastors, hey, um, I put, put my arm here, I put my leg here, I'm, I'm considering these things, they still squirm their little bottom around, and I'm spanking this way. Uh, what do you think about that? Is there anything concerning, anything I can sharpen or should be thinking through or doing different? Well, how I did it, and he gets down on the ground and shows me <laughs> how he did it, to not injure, to not hurt, to remain in self-control, and yet to administer the rod with self-control and love and care in an effective manner in the midst of a defiant child who's out of control in that moment. That was helpful. Incredibly helpful for me. So, diligently discipline, be faithful. And husbands, your wives should be active participants in the discipline and care of your children when you're not home. And you should be the primary leaders in this when you're home. Now, going back to the husband and wife, nature of parenting, conversations, helping your wife in this, having clear set hey, do you, this is what we're going after. This is how we should think through. How do you think through this? Sharpen my thinking. Let me help sharpen yours. Let's make sure we're on the same page. What things are we disciplining for? Why? What manner? What's the routine? Have those conversations. Work through those things. I, I, had, uh, I had Julie, when really early in our, in our marriage, um, I had Julie, Julie take the rod to my arm and show me, like, hey, here's how you can get the maximum sting with the minimum impact. You don't want to injure your kids. You don't want to bruise them. You don't want a deep impact. You want a sting that brings about temporal pain with no lingering ramifications of injury or anything along that line. It's out of love. It's with self-control. You're never walking in anger, right? The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You will not help your kids towards godliness when you are out of control anger, out, out of the control angry, always, 100% of the time, miss a shepherding opportunity to discipline your children rather than disciplining them out of anger. Don't do it. Uh, when your kids get a little older, if you need some time to get your heart right, they can connect the dots and understand the logic. When your kids are really young, time may go past squirrel, they've forgotten what happened and you may just miss a disciplined moment because you need to get your heart, heart right with the Lord, but never discipline out of anger. Never be out of control in your discipline.
question. It can be incredibly helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and if you look at the model of, of God and his care for his children, right? Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. The, that's the heart that we should have in our discipline. And I, I, um, I cannot just emphasize enough the importance of self-control uh, in, in your practice and use of the rod. And, uh, and you need to get there. You need to get there quick. If you have a propensity towards consistent anger, you need to repent of that and put that off so that you don't hinder your ability to care for your children and recognize uh, it's super sobering to think that my lack of willing to crucify a sin of lack of self-control or of selfishness of anger keeps me from being able to be God's means of grace in my children's life of helping them learn the folly of foolishness and the beauty of wisdom. Uh, that's just a sobering reality. And so Again, if that's a propensity, ask for help. That's the sweetness of being in the body of Christ. Get input, get, get care, encouragement, discipleship, uh, all of those things. I remember talking with a, uh, hearing, hearing from a man who was discipling, discipling us, um, him recount a story of his interaction with his children, where also we need to be men who seek our children's forgiveness when we do sin. And we need to restore the relationship on that side of things. Um, and I remember him talking about an instance where he uh, spoke harshly to his children when they were doing whatever. And he went back and was actually, his articulation was super convicting to me of his own sin. And he expressed to his child, child, in that moment, I did not have your best interests before the Lord in mind, but I actually conducted myself in a manner where you were more aware of my presence in the situation than the Lord's presence. Would you please forgive me? That's just helpful in thinking about our parenting. We don't get our kids to obey because we're bullies. Because we're big in stature and we can use the voice that we know it takes to get them to do what we say. That's why obedience out of submission, not obedience out of fear of dad blowing his top you know I told you you know if, if we find ourselves instructing that not working and so then we instruct again louder we're not being faithful in our training because now we're teaching them the fear of dad not simply obeying because dad's the authority and I fear the Lord and so addressing those situations disciplining we talk about delayed obedience is disobedience um, but then we also need to think about that in our own lives, right? And this is the log and the speck when we think about obeying out of joy. If we're parenting begrudgingly, um, we're actually exemplifying 
the very thing that we're admonishing them for. If we're discontent in our children's behavior and God's providence in our life in that moment, as our kid is complaining because they didn't get the ice cream that they wanted, we're actually just walking in the same boat as they are <laughs> in that moment. We need to deal with that. And again, that's why personal holiness is incredibly faith is incredibly important. And so the last point we need to we need to consistently train, diligently discipline, and then we need to faithfully exemplify in our parenting. And that's where we'll wrap up this morning. We need to confess sin, seek forgiveness, live a life recognizing God's presence in all things. We need to teach them to fear the Lord and not ourselves. We need to submit to authority joyfully as we live this life. We need to not be complainers. We need we expect them to obey with a happy heart. How, how are you doing in your role when you think about parenting, shepherding? How do they hear you talking about the authority in your life as it pertains to the government? How do they hear you talking about the authority in your life as it pertains to your work? Those in the church, are you one who is joyfully submissive, understanding the sovereignty and providence of God? That's what you're shepherding your child to do. You don't shepherd your child to obey you because you're a perfect parent. It's God's order. It's God's design. And they can trust the Lord. There's wisdom in trusting the Lord through flawed human authority. Well, our authority on this earth is flawed in every category. From government to church leadership to work, every human authority is flawed. And yet God still calls us to submit. Think about what a complete disregard for the speed limit unintentionally communicates to children who are watching how you view authority. If you go 80 down the roads and then hit the brakes the moment you see a police officer coming on, how are you training your children to think about their obedience to you when you're not around versus when you're around? Exemplify these things. Humbly submit to the authority in your life, even if it's a inconvenience when you're running late or whatever the circumstance may be. And then obviously, trust the Lord in all of this. We want, we want the best for our children. We want them to know the Lord. We want them to know wisdom. And yet, we just have to trust the Lord with our children. We can't control those things. We, ha we have ultimately no control over those things. Julie and I have taught talked frequently there's nothing in this life that we exert ourselves towards more intentionally and intensely than our parenting it's just 24 7 it's 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 our life we've got kids we're, we're constantly responsible for them we've got to care for them we've got to shepherd them we've got to run them to their different activities we've got all the things with our children there's nothing we exert ourselves towards more and feel our utter helplessness to a greater degree than our parenting and so in all of this don't miss prayer pray for your kids pray for yourself and your parenting of your kids find joy and obedience and entrust your children to the lord he is faithful and whatever comes of that if you have been faithful you, you can trust his wisdom any questions oh, praise god is a sobering, sobering call and a joyful endeavor. Absolutely. Okay, I will close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time this morning.
Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, just for this church. I know many men are traveling still, uh, caring for sick families, uh, returning from trips and recovering and getting caught up. And Lord, you know, you know the happenings, you know the challenges, the victories, the encouragements in every single one's life. And Lord, I pray that you would just be with them and strengthen them. Lord, I pray for us this morning that we would uh, live these things. It's a call that is beyond what we could ever obtain uh, in this life perfectly. And yet, Lord, help us to be faithful in our pursuit of these things. Help it to be done out of a, a heart of love for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.